Volasso. Uh, yesterday, thinking that the uh, recording device was working properly, I gave, to my mind, an overly verbose or elaborate answer to the question about eating meat. I don't know if you needed all that detail. I think the point I wanted to make is that it's not simply the vegetarian is good and if you're not vegetarian you're bad, that there's just an awful lot of nuance to it. Um, it wasn't recorded through no fault of Daniel, it was just a blip in the, um, the uh, like an electrical surge. So what I'd like to do now is give a really, really short answer. <laughs> so the, <laughs> the machine zapped me, <laughs> with maybe some good reason. Here's a really short answer, how about that? And that is between eating the flesh of animals and not eating the flesh of animals, especially those that have been killed, and that is not just, you know, accidental roadkill, uh, it is better to not eat the, uh, the, not eat food that required the killing of animals so that you're eating their flesh. That's better, just general, it's better. Uh, it's better if, if you can remain in good health, if you can remain in good health. It's also better if you can go vegan, then you don't have the indirect killing, of all the cattle and so forth that we went through yesterday. So if you can maintain, maintain good health as a vegan, no dairy products, no meat, that's better, less injury. Beyond that, if you can go, how do you say, organic, that is in terms of your, your grains, your fruits, your vegetables, there's less harm, less insects killed with in, and pesticides. If you can, and you can certainly stay healthy with organic food, that is, pesticides don't really do much for it, except for maybe make us ill, so that's better. Then if you can be a fructarian, an, an organic fructarian, eating only fruits and nuts, well, why not? Because then you don't have all the, the, the tilling and so forth, it's just fruit drops, you eat it, you know? A nut drops, thank you, eat it. So that's better. Then if you can, then if you can and you can stay healthy, that's important. If you can just live on metal julen, it's called flower essence pills. This is only in the Tibetan tradition. But just pills made out of flower essences, a little bit of butter, a little bit of honey, a little, a little tiny bit of tsampa, barley grain, uh, that's even better. And one of my teachers lived on those for months. That's even better. If you can stay healthy. If you can live just on the food of samadhi, that's even better. Right. And is there anything better than that? Yep, if you can achieve the great transference rainbow body, where your bodily, body completely dematerializes and turns into only a pure manifestation of primordial energy, so they have no internal organs, you have, there's just nothing to you but just a, a body of energy manifesting as if you're human, but in fact there's no materiality in your body at all. All the matter has been converted into energy and it's called the Great Transference Rainbow Body. But Padmasambhava achieved it, Vimalamitra achieved it, maybe Jesus achieved it, there's some serious speculation on that point, and there's one other yogi much later in Tibet achieved it, so it's quite rare, it seems like about every 500 years somebody achieves it. That's really cool. I mean, if you achieve that, my hat is off to you. <laughs> and the text of the Vajra Essence will tell you how to do it from start to finish, okay? Tells you all three levels of Vajra essence. So that's the short answer, right? That's all you really needed yesterday. What falls under the term sexual mix misconduct apart from the obvious rape, adultery? Um, don't want to go into any real detail in that. I mean, there's, there's a lot of nuances to it, but obviously one would be um, having sex with a, with, a, with a child or some, someone who is yeah, not an adult, just put it that way. Um, I think those are the important ones for the time being. I don't see any reason to go into the real subtlety of those right now. What are the spiritual advantages of any of being totally celibate? Simplicity. Simplicity. I know it for myself. And that is when I was 
what was that? It was, I was 21 when I went to India. And I wasn't a monk for the first year, so, but I was celibate. Because I just didn't want to do anything besides Dharma. Uh, I just didn't want to have any distractions. And so I had a girlfriend. She was a lovely person, is a lovely person. We're still friends. I'm with, friends with her husband and her both. Um, but I just didn't want to be distracted with romance, with the whole thing. I just wanted to be focused. So even from the time I arrived there, I was celibate. Two years later, I became a monk. And it really does. It just simplifies. You see women and you, just don't, you don't even think about, oh, does she like me? You know, you just don't go there. You just don't go there at all. You just simplify and you just go for Dharma. Geshe Dapton, who was a monk's monk, he told me once, he said, ordain me as a, as a novice. He said, now that, you're, now that you're a monk, you have only three things to do. And that is study, contemplate the teachings, and meditate. And then when the time, and then he, then later I learned, and when the time comes, go out and be of service. And that's pretty much it. There's just nothing else to do. So that's the advantage of being celibate. There may be other subtle, subtle advantages in terms of subtle fluids and all that kind of business, but um, that's the real cash value. It radically simplifies. And of course, it doesn't, and, and it just not only simplifies, um, but it doesn't get your mind, it doesn't invite your mind so much to get caught up in attachment. attachment. Now, there's no guarantee, as everybody who's been ordained knows, that by taking ordination that now suddenly you're going to be free of attachment. You can, be, you can be free. You can still lust all over the place. We did, we had a retreat back in the, in Switzerland in the late 70s, and there was a monk. He was a good monk, but in the middle of this six-week retreat, he was just like almost flames coming out of his head. He was just so overcome by sexual desire, and didn't. And it was just, he was cried. He, I was the senior monk, the senior Western monk. He just came to me in tears, you know, because he wanted to be a good monk. He was being a good monk, but man, the lust was eating eating him alive. So no joking matter. And so, but if you're just sitting there being a monk and then just wishing you weren't, then that's not very helpful. And then some monks are greedy, acquiring a lot of, lot of money, buying really fancy houses for themselves, fancy automobiles and so forth and so on. Um, and they're still monks. I mean, they didn't break a precept, but they're going for, the, going for the money. Some are going for sensual enjoyments, just not the sex, but everything else. Others really crave pra praise. Others crave reputation, status, power. So the mere fact that you take ordination, unfortunately, does not then just knock out attachment altogether. But it does simplify for that's for sure. Okay, so those were short answers. Here's a question from Ilsa. Do bodhisattvas enjoy flowers? <laughs> I suppose it depends on the bodhisattva and it depends on the flowers. <laughs> But I know that uh, the Dalai Lama does. I, I would say it's a pretty easy guess that he's a bodhisattva. He has a whole garden of flowers, he, and he tends to the garden himself. And it's not vegetables, it's flowers. And the, the Buddhist tradition, obviously, I know most, most about is the Tibetan tradition. And in monasteries all over the place, they've got pots of flowers, they love flowers, there are flowers on the altars. So I think it's a pretty safe bet. Yep, bodhisattvas love flowers. And there's an, uh, here's a more generic response, and that is... One of my teachers is a... I have two women lamas, teachers, spiritual mentors. One is really like my spiritual mother, Sakyadamana, uh, really bodhisattva, just a marvelous teacher, practitioner, meditator, uh, just extraordinary being. And also when she... And she's still very... She's maybe 70, early 70s, I think now. To my mind, just so lovely, so beautiful, you know, because just such warmth, such kindness flows out of her. And when she was young, 
Uh, she was by any standard just gorgeous. Just, I saw a photo of her when she was 16. I start when I'm going, <laughs> you know, she was really beautiful. <coughs> and so she knows what it's like to be beautiful. And she, so she knows beauty from the inside out in every literal sense of that term. And so someone asked her, I was translating for her years ago, somebody asked her within the Buddhist context, what is the role of beauty? What is the role of beauty? So flowers and so many other things that are beautiful. And her face lit up in a very beautiful way. And she said, oh, beauty is so, so valuable, it brings such joy to the heart. Right? So I think that's, that's something, I think, more characteristic of the Mahayana. More characteristic of the Mahayana. Having said that, does that mean the Theravada doesn't care about beauty? That's ridiculous. Go to any really nice Theravada monastery. Gorgeous. The statues, just there's so much beauty. And you go to any of the great, the great, how do we say, temples and so forth, and they go out of their way to really celebrate the Buddha's enlightenment, celebrate the Dharma, the Sangha, with beauty. Um, at the same time, if you see something, something beautiful, it's very easy for desire to arise for it, and therefore attachment. And so, I, so in the Theravada, it's, it has its place, but it's really in, in Dharma itself, which is a good place to keep it. Uh, in the Mahayana tradition, there's more of an emphasis... This is not Vajrayana already, it's just more of an emphasis within general Bodhisattvayana or Mahayana to take desire and transmute it into the path. Just ordinary desire, so desire for beauty and so forth. Uh, for example, and I'm not going esoteric here, I'm not going into Vajrayana, but one common practice. If you see something really beautiful, like just this, our housing back there, it's just beautifully laid out. Uh, it's just the design is nice, it's clean, it's simple, it's elegant, it's just lovely. And you say, oh, how beautiful that is. And then, in just straight Mahayana practice, say, ah, oh, such beauty. And then you just imagine offering this, offering it to all sentient beings, offering it to, to the Buddhas and so forth, you know, to bring joy. So, what is it, the third chapter? Third chapter of Shantideva, I think. Yeah, third, third chapter of the, um, yeah, positive. Third chapter of A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. Great Mahayana classic. Then you'll see that he's making one beautiful offering after another to all the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas, and so forth. And he's inviting you to join in with him in a just a celebratory visualization of all kinds of beautiful things and just offering to these all to all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And that brings joy to your own heart. So what about joy is genuine happiness more Tibetan Buddhism? So we hear a lot about suffering in Buddhism, uh, but what about joy? Well, there's a lot on joy as well, and this is in all tradition. traditions. The Buddha spoke in the, in the Pali Canon. The Buddha said, samadhi arises from joy. He says the, the joy that arises from samadhi, so it's reciprocal. But the sukha, and the, in the sukha, and then in, 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 in Pali it's pitti, or Sanskrit pitti, the bliss, the sense of well-being that arises from uh, samadhi, among the five jhana factors. The Buddha said of these forms of bliss and happiness, he said, these, the bliss of samadhi, the bliss of jhana, is not to be feared. Not to be feared. So can one become attached to it? Yeah, but don't, don't get too excited about that. It's okay, it's okay. You can enjoy that bliss. And then you, you move beyond it into vipassana and so forth. So there's a lot on joy. There's the joy of blamelessness. Uh, there is a, a value placed upon mundane, mundane well-being uh, of sukha, of mundane well-being, that it's important that you have enough to eat, food, food, and, food and clothing, shelter, medical care when you need it, and the joy of blamelessness, the joy of having no debts. So these, there's a lot on joy. 
And then, of course, in the Mahayana tradition and Vajrayana tradition, so much emphasis on sukha and mahasukha, great joy, great bliss. So there is a balance there. It's a balance. And you find it very explicitly among the four immeasurables. You find it very much there. So really, loving-kindness is all about joy and the causes of joy. But then if, if the joy is sitting on top of a lot of causes of misery, then it's going to be a very fragile joy. So then, therefore, we go to, go to compassion. But then we balance that out with empathetic joy, and then we totally even it out with equanimity. So, here's one. This is from Ivan. I've heard that when an ordinary human being, like most of us, dies, it's possible that we could have some perception or awareness of the body, of our physical body, after clinical death. Yeah, could you have an out-of-body experience and see your dead body? Yeah, you could. Like this woman, again, who was killed and brought back to life in a, a very extraordinary surgical procedure, this woman, Pam Reynolds, she saw her body that was basically lifeless. It really was. It was dead. Uh, when it's down to, what would that be, 15 degrees centigrade? And there's no blood in the brain? And there's no electricity generated by the brain? And there's no heartbeat? That's pretty dead. And it was dead for quite a long time, so they, they could do the whole surgical procedure, and she saw her body being drilled into with the into the head. So if so, then if such a person donates their organs, this means that he or she could see or even feel how the doctor would remove their organs, therefore experiencing extreme suffering and terror. This will obviously give rise to very strong craving and many other afflictive emotions that could have a negative result for the next rebirth due to their last strong negative emotions at such an important moment. Is this possible or true? Well, they would see it, but I don't think they would feel it. That is, when, when this, I'm just taking this case of the woman, P Pam Reynolds. It's clearly documented. It was in a neurological facility. It was, it was just straight. It was re utterly remarkable. And the physicians who heard what she could rec record says, we just have no ex way of explaining what she accurately accounted, what she, what she reported. So she observed the drill going into her head, right? But when she observed that, she didn't go, I... You know, she, she wasn't experiencing any pain, so she saw it. But it was from this really disembodied perspective. So she simply saw it from outside, but she never mentioned any sense of pain in that regard. So I think it's not this simple. I don't think this is... If this were the whole story, this might be sufficient reason right there not to want to even consider or, or donating your organs. I think I wouldn't want to go there just in, in, in a one-step process. Um, I don't think everybody who dies hangs around their dead body. I mean, what's so interesting about it? They, might, they could just be heading off and, and looking at other things. Um, and so it could happen, but number one, they would not feel, they would not feel anything when they go for the autopsy freshly after the person is dead and they're taking out whatever organs can be salvaged and eyes and so forth and so on. Uh, they won't feel any pain in that. I think we can be confident of that. They might see it. Now, bear in mind, if they die with a, motiva if they die with a motivation as their final act, may, by, may, may my body bring sight to the sightless, life to those who, who, you know, maybe the organ will give somebody life, and the heart will give somebody life, and the kidneys give somebody life. And if that's their motivation, here's my last wish, may my body be as much benefit as possible. And that's really the motivation. And then they die. And they do actually witness. They can say, oh, good, they're getting, they're using a lot of it. They're what? And they could be, good, I, I invited you to do this, and now you're doing it. Excellent. It would be like the Bodhisattva who gave away his, you know, gave his body to the, to the tigress. He says, oh, good, you're finally getting it. You know, after he ripped himself open so he could start licking the blood. Good, I offered it, now you're chowing down. Enjoy the banquet. 
you know. So I think if one, if one, I think I would rest there, and that is if if, if it's truly done in a spirit of altruism. And then you see people are truly benefiting, that their doctors are being conscientious, they're preserving them, okay, put this and preserve it, preserve it, so they can really help people. Then, number one, you wouldn't feel anything. And number two, you could really take satisfaction in that. That, that, was, your, that was your final gift before you died. What a nice thing. Okay? So, but, but it would be a little bit like this, the way you've described it. It would be a little bit like giving away something and then when you see the other person enjoying it, like, you know, giving money or giving something that you value, and then somebody else gets it and they're enjoying it, and you think, oh, now he has it. Yeah, I don't have it anymore. I wish I hadn't given it away. That's, that's a bummer. I wish I had it back, <laughs> you know? Uh, well, then you're eating up the virtuous karma that you had by giving it. You're just throwing acid on it. So there's no good virtuous karma because now you just wish you hadn't done it, right? It's, like, it's just like feeling remorse for a negative deed that undoes the the negative power of it. So here, here also. So if you gave it away, but you kind of just did it out of obligation, like uh, some, you know, somebody's watching, they're going to check my driver's license to see whether I put a check, and so I guess I better, because I want people to know that I'm really virtuous. And then you see them actually taking your organs and say, crap, I could have used those. You know, if you feel regret, yeah, that, that would be bad. Yeah. So if you're going to do it, do it with pure altruism. I think that's the moral of it. If you're going to offer your organs, do it with pure altruism, and don't look back. Say, bye-bye, body, finished. Now it's somebody else's turn to use that body. Okay? Good. good. This is a very practical question. It's good. Okay. I, I, I saw the name before. I just want to make sure it's not anonymous. It's a, it's a good question. So, having... And I think a lot of us can resonate with this. I can, myself. I can. I, I do resonate with this. Um, I've been around for a long time. 60 years, I've done this having the sense that I probably had low self-esteem, a lack of faith in myself for some, for some time, seems that unless I'm competing with someone else, or even with myself, so how, how am I today versus yesterday and so forth, I'm not sure how to boost my self-confidence. That's very, very practical. There's more to the question than that. But uh, I know that when I was, I was academically very competitive, uh, especially in teenage years and that, that... Um, yeah, because I was in the advanced placement classes, and so, you know, we're, we're, jo we're jockeying there. Who's going to get the prize for, for language? Who's going to get the, the prize for the whole class, for science and math and so forth? I did. <laughs> you know, I wanted it. And so, but then you know, okay, you got the, you got the foreign language prize. Okay, that means for my class, I was the best one. I, then, I'm, then, okay, I'm, I'm doing okay here. And I, I'm, I'm really tooting my horn here. But, of course, I was 18. Uh, but, you know, science, math, well... I got that one too. So, okay, now I'm, I'm a cut above. I'm a cut above. And I had a good grade point average. Okay. So then you can evaluate with your respect with other people, and that will give you a firm platform for looking down on all those beneath you. There's a real killer. And so it does give self-confidence, self as you well know, Nick, and I do too, but it comes with a real cost. Because people can really start quite realistically looking at us as a pompous ass. You know, stuck up, arrogant, conceited. And it's a very unattractive quality in anybody. The most beautiful woman, you can have an extravagantly beautiful woman, but if she's arrogant, frankly, just speaking as a guy, the beauty really... <laughs> there's just not much beauty left. It's more like a beauty of a statue. But isn't it true? It's just, 
She's so arrogant. And the same thing, of course, of course it's even. Really exceptionally handsome man, but strutting around like a peacock. Looks like a joke. So it's not attractive. So there we go. So what do we do about this? That's the real question. This idea got muddled up with cockiness and self-righteousness somewhere. Sure, absolutely. Because we're, we're evaluating our own self-worth with respect to others, taking satisfaction only when we see that we're superior to others, and now we fall into pride, and now others can be really look at us with disgust. <laughs> so it looks like a real no-win no win situation. If we compete and we lose, then we feel, well, then I'm not of much self-worth, and other people can take pity on us. Isn't that a wonderful option? So... Sometimes considering the importance of this issue and ever being able to achieve shamatha, can you talk on this subject? I feel like it, it should be as common knowledge as learning ABCs in kindergarten, but it, it definitely confuses me. Well, that's because it's never taught in kindergarten or in grade school or in secondary school. I don't think it's taught in, in undergraduate or graduate school either. How do you develop self-confidence, which is enormously important? All good teachers know this from kindergarten, preschool on up, it's important for little children to have self-confidence, not to be intimidated, not to feel they're not worthy, not feel, you know, it, it's really important. I mean, it's common knowledge. And so I, I assume that Michelle will, will be working with other people here, that this, that we're really, this becomes a big issue. For these little children, we'll have little tiny children, what, three years old or even younger, I think, in this school. 18 months, right? 18 months, up to 18 years, right? And so we're getting them early here, how can we not only nurture them and give them the education they need to live in the modern world, but provide them with these basic skills that all children should be taught? In the, if it's climate, if it's in home, that's great. If it's in church or the synagogue or the temple, that's great. But one way or another, they should be taught this, that we can learn how to have a sense of self-confidence, a sense of self-worth that doesn't just set us up being, having the sense of being superior to other people. That's enormously crucial. This is broken down very nicely in, in, in the Tibetan it comes up in the seventh chapter, the seventh chapter on enthusiasm in Shantideva's text, which is about, all about enthusiasm, but in the midst of enthusiasm, he talks about pride on the one hand. Pride is a mental affliction, and the, the Tibetan word tells it all. It really tells it all. The Tibetan word for, for pride, standard translation, is ngagel, ngagel. Ng means I, this guy here, I. And gel means win. I win. You lose. I'm better. I feel really good about that. Until somebody turns to me and says, Ma gel, Alan, you lose. And then I don't feel so good anymore. All right? So it's just a matter of time. It's like the fastest gun in the West. Well, you're fastest gun until somebody else is the fastest gun, then you're a dead fastest gun. Right? But it's just a matter of time who's really optimally performing even at chess, let alone athletics or anything else, what, you know, during the final years of our lives. So it's setting us up to be losers. So, Nigel is a mental affliction, and the defining characteristic of it is exactly that, feeling superior to others. Superior to others. And then there's a word in the same chapter, Popa. Popa. And Popa means confidence. If we don't have confidence, Will not, will not achieve anything that really requires confidence. Just, I'll make that a tautology. There are a lot of things that are not easily won. A successful marriage is not easily won. They don't just fall in your lap. Doing well in school is not easily won. Shamat is not easily won. Uh, creating and, and, and developing a, a flourishing, successful business in which the, the workers are content, happy, balanced, and so forth, that's not easily done. That's hard to do, 
right? To create a really good business, creating a good product with a good harmony in the workplace, that takes a lot of work. So these are, everyone that I just mentioned, those are meaningful endeavors. And they all take confidence. If you don't have it, it probably won't happen. It probably won't happen. So how do we develop confidence without the ngagyel, the I win, the arrogance, the pride? Let's see if there's anything more to the question. In summary, there's faith in, one's, faith in oneself or confidence versus cockiness, self-righteousness, perfectionism. Perfectionism also is, is, is a double, double-edged sword. And that is, would you like to achieve shamatha or just do a crappy job of shamatha? Of course, you, if you go through the nine stages and you achieve shamatha, well, then you've achieved perfect shamatha. And the Buddha is called Samyak, has achieved Samyak Sambodhi, perfect enlightenment. So the Buddha had to be, a, the, the Bodhisattva who became a Buddha had to be a perfectionist, right? Had to be, yeah. So there's nothing wrong with perfectionism, and so we often use this as kind of like this is a bad thing. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. When I see the monks creating sand mandalas, some, especially, the, well, all of them, but the, the Kala Chakra is the most elaborate of them all, you get four monks on each of the four sides of the mandala, and you watch their, you watch their focus. And are thinking, uh, if it smudges a bit, who cares? I mean, it's just a mandala, and we're going to throw it away anyway, so let's just get this job done. Never, never. They're going, shh, 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 shh. and if they make a mistake, they don't actually swallow it. But, you know, suck the grain back up and do it all over again. They're looking for perfection. They're looking for perfection. Even if it's all going to be thrown into the water in three or four days, they want that mandala as an act of their reverence to be perfect. Every line perfect, every grain perfect, no smudging. That's, that's part of the practice of creating a sand mandala. Perfection, perfect. Ethics. I would like to be perfect. Jesus, I think, wanted us to be perfect. Why else would he say, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect? So I think Jesus might have been, must have been a perfectionist. Buddha was a perfectionist. And so there we are. So it's a double-edged sword. But we can also just beat, our head, head over the, beat ourselves over the head with false expectations and so forth. Then we have, get make this a bit more complicated, we have no self, no ego philosophy versus self-confidence, self-worth, and feeling useful. Having a sense, but self-worth really is, sums it up a lot, having a sense of meaning in one's life rather than feeling my whole life is meaningless because that's I'm not worth anything. So, very, very juicy question. Maybe I will, I, uh, has, I'll put it this way. I'm not going to do th- things just for the recording. If everybody's heard the story of my first encounter with the Dalai Lama and my question, has anybody not heard it? 1971, most people have heard it. Okay, well, what's that? You have not heard it. How many people that don't know the story at all of my first meeting with this? Okay, more than that. Okay, it's at least half. The other one, it's still a good story, and I think it's, I don't mind telling it again, because I find it meaningful every time I tell it. So I don't, I find sometimes tedious talking about vegetarian, you know, eating meat and not, just because I have never anything fresh to say, and I don't learn anything from it. But this one, when I come back to it, I said, ah, yes, thank you for the reminder. Thank you for the reminder. So I'll tell the, I'll tell the story. I arrived, I remember I, I arrived in Dharamsala, or actually I was, I was on my way to Dharamsala, in 1971, having just flown up from Bombay to Delhi and Delhi to Patankot. And I, and I think I had to stay overnight in a little hotel there, and they had a picture of the Dalai Lama up on the wall. And I just didn't have any feeling for him at all. I just thought he was a king, that he was a figurehead. He was, he was you know, we have, do we really revere our kings in the West? I'm not speaking about Thailand. But, you know, do we really revere our kings? I mean, do we feel devotion and reverence for them? I never have. I'm an American. 
we threw that out, right? Hello, Mr. Bush. Hello, Mr. Obama. We don't say your, your highness or anything like that. Hello, mister. And that's what you say to the plumber. We're egalitarian here. Hello, mister. And that's a nice way to greet your plumber. Oh, Mr. Mr. Jackson, thank you for coming. You came right on time. Thank you so much, Mr. Jackson. Thank you, Mr. Obama, for passing health care. You know, so we're not into reverence, we Americans. We're egalitarian. All men are created evil. <laughs> that was not a Freudian slip. <laughs> all men are created evil. All women are created lovely. So, so I'll try to rephrase that one. All men are created equal and women a little bit less so until 1919 or something when they finally got to vote and then they finally were created equal. Wasn't that a nice afterthought that the women also created equal? All the way up with us men. <laughs> okay, end of irony session. <laughs> Moving right along, but I didn't, I have to say, when I just saw the image of the Dalai Lama, what I'd heard about him, that there wasn't much to hear. He wasn't an international celebrity at that time. I just felt he's a king and that's good. And then I looked at the, the, the photos of his two tutors and I just immediately felt reverence. I thought, boy, the king probably got two of the wisest men in the whole country. They would have chosen the best of the best of the best to be his tutors. They must be out of this world. And I looked upon them like they were extraterrestrial. Like, wow, they must be incredible. And how lucky is he to have... So I didn't come in with just a great surge of natural faith in the Dalai Lama. Um, and just intellectually, I felt that his tutors must be really something. So got to Dharamsala, I moved in, and after I'd been living there for a month or two, then I was living in the home of the Dalai Lama's personal physician, and he told me, Alan, if you'd like to have a personal audience with His Holiness, I'm sure this can be arranged. And I was shy, because I, I knew he, he was a king, and he had many important things to do, and I certainly was not an important person. I didn't want to waste his time. So I didn't want to just go seek an audience and say, hi, my name's Alan, uh, I know your name. <laughs> you know, um, have a nice day. Uh, do you like flowers? <laughs> I didn't want to have chit-chat. I didn't want to have chit-chat. So I waited. I waited until I felt that I had a question that would be really meaningful and would not waste his time. And what I found over the first couple of months there, so the, the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives opened. I was going six days a week down to the library, studying very diligently, learning Buddhism as taking in as much as I could, as fast as I could, studying Tibetan language. And so I was studying very diligently. And after only a couple of months, uh, then some other Westerners who would be spending weeks or months there in Dharamsala, they would know that I'd been there before them. They would come to ask me questions about Dharma. You know, I'd been there for a couple of months. I really knew something. And uh, their questions were, of course, very, very basic. They knew almost nothing. And so I found pretty much all the time when they asked me a question about Dharma, I could answer it. And then they were grateful, oh, that's a really great answer, thank you very much. And, and then I noted, aha, Magyal. <laughs> you didn't know much, I know more. I know more about Buddhism than you do. In fact, I know more about Buddhism than all the other white people here. Uh, so I was already starting to feel kind of special, a bit superior. And I, but I was not insane, I knew that my knowledge could fit inside of a peanut, but I had one more peanut than most of the people around me among the Westerners coming in, the hippies. So I thought, okay, I got a peanut full of, a peanut full of knowledge and I got now a peanut full of arrogance, which I, I came with, I brought that with me actually. I could have left it back in America, but you know, never leave home without it as they say. 
So I brought my arrogance with me, and I brought my, and then I got acquired my peanut of knowledge, and now I've got a little bit bigger. I had arrogance about other things, but now I got one more thing to be arrogant about, to feel I'm superior for. And I knew that I wanted to do this for the rest of my life. That was a strong intuition. So I thought, how's this going to work out? In a year, I'll have a bag full of peanuts, and then I'll have just as much arrogance, because then I'll know a lot more than a lot more people. And then 10 years from now, I'm going to have 10 bags of peanuts, and then I'll be 10 times as arrogant. And then when I progress along the path to enlightenment, I'll have 1,000 and 10,000, and then I'll be 10,000 times more arrogant. And this is not looking like it works out very well. How can you progress along the path to enlightenment and just become more and more arrogant? And because of reality, because you in fact do know more. And it's not only knowledge, but you start meditating, you get meditative experience. And you start cultivating other qualities, like in the Buddhist Harvatara, and you develop them. I mean, that's the whole idea. You cultivate them, so you realize them. And so I thought, if I'm developing these qualities that are of tremendous value, that I value and a lot of people value, of intelligence, of, of wisdom, of patience, of compassion, empathy, the whole array, the six perfections and all of that, if I actually develop these, while a lot of people are really not concerned with developing and they're just trying to make a living, then I will in fact be, let's use a really nasty word, better. I mean, I will have greater of these qualities than a lot of other people have, and I'll recognize that, and then I'll look down on other people because I'm better. But I'm not better, I'm a schmuck, because I'm an arrogant jerk. So how could... There's a conundrum here, and I think you've put your finger on this, the same conundrum, right? And if you fail, then, then why go there anyway? Why don't you just stay home and you know, be hedonic? And so I thought, now that's, this is a real conundrum. I don't, I don't know what to do about this. I don't know how to get out of this, of actually developing excellent qualities and not, and not, not feeling, oh, I have excellent qualities and therefore I'm superior to other people. How do you avoid that? So I said, okay, then I raised my hand. I'd like to meet the Dalai Lama now. And so it was quickly arranged. I went and I had my audience with him and I told him, here's, here's a problem. I know I'm a complete beginner. I know I don't know much at all, but I know I am developing. This is coming. A sense of I'm a bit special. What shall I do? And he gave me maybe the most memorable, um, because it was a very momentous meeting with him, and I knew how I found my guru, and this is not, a, not simply a king, but an extraordinary being. And at that time he was only 36 years old. But I knew this was, he was my lama. He was the one I, I could really take refuge in. Then it, when I met him personally, it wasn't a photo, it wasn't an article when I met him one-on-one. -on -one. Then, very quickly, I just had the sense, this is my lama. Here's the metaphor he gave me. He said, imagine that you are very hungry, you're a beggar, and you're really, really hungry, and you come to some house, which is clearly, you know, good house, nice house, affluent, you knock on the door and you say, please, I'm terribly hungry, can you spare some food? And they welcome you in, so of course, we're happy to have you. Come on in, here's the dining, we're just sitting down, and you're welcome to join us. Not just, they don't just throw you some bread, they invite you in as a member of the family. I'll see if I can get through this. There's a really strong emotion coming up. I feel it coming a little bit. I think I can keep it down a little bit. But they invite you in, and they sit you down as a member of the family. And they've served this wonderful meal, all kinds of wonderful, nourish nourishing, delicious, and they just sit you down and say, have as much as you like. Here, would you like more? Would you like more? And they don't ask anything for them back. They don't say, and that, that'll be, you know, $10, please. No, it's all freely given, freely given. So imagine you're that person, you sit down, you, you eat as much as you possibly want. And you're full, you're satisfied, delicious meal, he said. And now, once you finish the meal, do you feel proud? Do you feel proud? Oh, look at all the food I've eaten. 
wow, I really ate a lot. You can relate to that, Malcolm. Paul, I really ate a lot. <laughs> Do you feel prou proud? Would you feel proud having eaten a, this big meal? I said, no. <laughs> not, I didn't say it, but I'm not that crazy. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't feel proud. And he said, and I, I can't quote him verbatim, but I know very closely what he said. So you wouldn't feel proud, of course. You'd feel grateful that you came in as a beggar. They gave you all this. You just simply feel grateful, right? Yes, of course. I said, yes, I would feel only grateful. He said, okay, it's the same. You've come from a long distance because you really had hunger. You wanted to come here to learn Dharma. And it was literally true. They just opened their doors. Everything was given just freely. Everything was given freely. For one month, for one month of instruction from Geshe Gyal and Taige, six days a week, and we could drop in on him any time. This man was just like a radiant light, just loving to share Dharma. Six days a week, mm, for one month, the tuition was, I think it was $3. And that paid, do you remember Mervyn, for one year? Was it $3? Yeah. Or what? what? 25 rupees. I, this is an old memory, and he confirms it. That was three bucks, because back then, one rupee, eight rupees was one dollar. It was three dollars tuition per month. Boy, a couple of old fogies here. Thank you. I'm glad to see that old memory actually was correct. Three dollars a month tuition, six days a week. That covered janitor. That covered the janitor. Maybe. The teaching was simply free. Here are these refugees. And again, I feel emotion coming up. Here are these refugees creating this whole library for, you know, to preserve their culture, but creating classes that were really for us. These were really for us. That's really something. They never asked for anything back. Never asked, never expected. Just the sheer joy of giving the Dharma. Hmm. So yes, I was just, that, that analogy was so exactly spot on. I was just a beggar. I had nothing to give them. And I hardly even had any money because I spent all my money for the one-way airline ticket. And so when I got to Dharamsala, I hardly had anything. I could, I could live for about a year. But uh, hardly, so I really had nothing. I could pay my 25 rupees monthly tu tuition. I could pay that. So that just, boy, that, that arrow just struck the target. I thought, whoa. How can I even imagine feeling pride when this is all just given freely? So, and then he gave one more analogy. I think this is all relevant, Nick. So he gave that one. Boy, that was one bullseye. I get it. I totally get it. I totally get it. And then he gave another analogy, and I think he actually did point to a fly. And he said, okay, imagine this fly has just found a little drop of honey, and it's coming over to the, to the, uh, to the honey and sucking it in, drinking in the honey. And then another fly comes to the spot of honey. The other fly comes, and the first fly goes, <laughs> tries to scare away the other fly. This is my honey. No honey for you. All my honey. Acts really selfish. Well, no human being looking down on that would feel, what a stupid fly. I hope I'm not like that. I'm not... I'm, Boy, that's a really selfish fly. 
nasty little fly, you should be more generous than that. Nobody's thinking that. The fly never has any opportunity to learn dharma, doesn't have any dharma lessons, just is acting out of instinct. And so the fly is doing what flies do. They really don't have any choice at all. It's fly. So there we, so we don't stand a judgment. The fly's acting like a fly. Why would you expect anything different? But he said, if I, Tenzin Gatso, he's 36 years old, he's been a monk since the age of three or so, had lots and lots of Dharma education, superb Dharma education from the finest possible teachers. He said, if I, Tenzin Gatso, should behave like that fly, I get something nice, not a drop of honey, but something else. Somebody get, and then I go like that, scaring other people away. It's mine. If I should be selfish like the fly, then this is disgrace. This is disgrace for the Dalai Lama, for Tenzin Gatso. It's not a disgrace for the fly. No judgment. But if I behave like the fly, this is disgrace. This is shame. Right? Why? Because I have more knowledge. I have more understanding. And if you have more knowledge and more understanding, you have more responsibility. That's just the way it is. And that was enough. I don't remember anything else that was said. But it was... And he knocked out. Now I can't say, I wish I could say, and I've never had any pride ever since. I would love to say that. I'd be very proud to say that. <laughs> but in fact, uh, I can't. And so in all humility, I have to say that's not true, but I'm very proud of being humble. I'm more humble than most people. <laughs> I wish. So there we go. So it boils, so now, but that was the story. And to my mind, that was just, that was, well, I just, this man's my lama. Anybody can give, give me teachings like that, that just two arrows go right into the target, into the bullseye. And that he lived, he absolutely lives what he, there's just no disparity, no, no disparity, no discrepancy. His teachings and his life, boy, it's just non-dual, same. Tremendously, but naturally, spontaneously humble man. He's the most compassionate man that I know of, and I don't really know how to evaluate compassion, but just in terms of my own impressions, I don't know anybody more compassionate than he is. But, and yet, utter, I don't know anybody more humble than he is. And it's not contrived. I've never seen him compete with anybody for anything. Um, he's a superb, well, so I could start just praising and praising him. But his humility is absolutely genuine. And so he's walking the walk, he's walking the talk, he's, he's living what he's teaching. And now I'll give the, so let's distill this a little bit. How do we develop a sense of self-worth? Internally. Internally. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing if we see that we have certain character traits that bring us pain. It could be selfishness. It could be irritation. It could be aggression. It could be nasty, kind of nasty competitiveness with others. It could be any of the mental afflictions. It could be behavioral, it could be behavioral issues. I could, I, when I was a teenager, I could be quite sarcastic with no, with no redeeming values at all. I, and I, I would take some pride in that. Of, I could be sarcastic, I could find those words that could, you know, snap somebody. I could be really clever. Uh, I think I've pretty much outgrown that one. A bit of irony once in a while, but I try not to make fun of people. I have no qualms about ridiculing stupid ideas because they're not sentient beings. So that one I'll keep on doing when I feel like it. If I see something really stupid, like ideas don't exist. Shall we ridicule that one again? That was fun to kick that one around a little bit. So, but internally, to recognize that I still have some 
not helpful, harmful uh, behavioral patterns. No question I do. Still mental afflictions, ah, oh, who needs to be told that? So clearly, but as the course of, over the course of time, if I can see that some of those behavioral tendencies are getting less and less, less strong, less prevalent, less frequent, mental afflictions coming up, not so easily capturing me, not coming at such strength, not coming up with such frequency. If I can see some change month to month and then year to year, I'm happy to see that. So one can say, well, am I competing internally with myself? Okay, why not? That is, there's a little bit less of this mental affliction, a little bit less of this type of behavior, and then there's the virtues, uh, more spontaneously arising this, whether it's generosity, whether it's kindness, whether it's caring, whether it's wisdom, whether it's attentional stability and vividness, whatever it may be, seeing that the virtues are growing and taking, hey, we have a word for that. It's called mudita. It's called taking joy. Taking joy in our own practice, taking joy when we see that it's giving rise to real benefit. And then when we see that the medicine we're taking, and the, and the greatest analogy for Dharma is medicine, that we're taking the medicine and that it's actually working. You know, and we see the mental afflictions gradually subsiding. We see the, the restlessness, the anxiety, the, just the perturbation of the mind, the uneasiness of the mind gradually subsiding, greater sense of contentment, greater sense of inner serenity, out of that a greater sense of well-being. When we see virtues and happiness arising, when we see mental afflictions and their consequent suffering diminishing, there's no reason not to take, satis to take satisfaction in that. That's a good thing to take the satisfaction in. And there was, there was no reference to anybody else. It was just internally, within this system, of this ongoing flow that each of us consists of. If we can see that we are ad addressing the underlying causes of suffering and attenuating them, and we're recognizing what are the true causes of happiness and cultivating them, and reaping the harvest of that, less suffering, greater sense of well-being, greater sense of resilience, of equilibrium, of balance. That's something to take satisfaction in, and out of that comes a sense of self-worth, of self-value, of confidence, and how doesn't that feed into, oh, what a special person am I? It's simple, actually. His Holiness pointed to it immediately. Look at the causes and conditions that gave rise to them. Did you learn Dharma all by yourself? No, there was a teacher. Is that enough just to have a teacher? No. Here, in this context, you have a whole support of Sangha, of Dharma friends. I think it's safe to say now, we're all Dharma friends. There are no strangers here. There are no enemies here. I, I've not heard of anything of that sort. There are no enemies here. There are no strangers here. We're only friends with each other. And that has given me great joy. Great joy. This has been really wonderful to see how we've been all treating each other. Much satisfaction. And so seeing, ah, is having a teacher? Sure, that's one role. So gratitude for a teacher, that's good. Having the supporting Sangha, that's really wonderful. The Buddha said to Ananda, when Ananda said, Oh, Lord, it seems like having spiritual friends is half the Dharma, is half the practice. And the Buddha said, Say not so, Ananda. Having spiritual friends is the whole of the practice. Emphasizing how important it is to have this support from our spiritual friends, including teachers. A teacher is a spiritual friend. And saying, Yes, my Dharma, my dharma is flourishing. I'm, I'm benefiting from the practice. So again, you're the beggar. I'm the beggar, right? And how has this taken place? 
teachers who had some wisdom, had some compassion, and offered what they could. Surrounding Dharma community, offering their friendship, their mutual support. And then here we are. Oh, we didn't buy this place, did we? I don't recall having bought this place. Oh, no, somebody else bought it, paid for it. And then a whole bunch of other people built it and are sustaining it, maintaining it. And all these causes and conditions coming in. And I didn't walk here from Santa Barbara. I flew. And I don't know how to make an airplane, and I don't know how to fly it. So thank you, pilot. Thank you, all those who made the airplane. And then when I landed at the airport, it didn't crash. They actually had some air traffic controllers. Thank you, air traffic controller. I'm glad we didn't crash in Phuket. Thank you, I got here safely. I didn't make the car that got me here. Thank you, whoever made the car. And I didn't drive it either. Thank you, who drove the car. And the list, it just keeps on going and going and going. It's pratiti samampada. Whatever qualities we develop, whether it's learning how to hit a baseball, whether it's excelling in high school or college or university, whatever, it never happens by ourselves. Never ever happens by ourselves. If we excel at anything, there are these manifold, myriad causes and conditions coming together that enable that particular fruition to, t to arise. And so the most realistic response when we see that we're excelling at something, greater generosity is there, greater wisdom is there, less mental afflictions are there, this is progress, this is excellent, and we are becoming better human beings. That's the whole idea. As soon as we note that, the first realistic response is, thank you. Because we're the first recipient. We're the first recipient. Just had a good meal. So therein lies confidence, sense of self-worth, meaning in life, sense of gratitude. And as we look out, you know, when you go to Phuket, when you need to go here and there, as Shantideva says, when you see any sentient being, just consider it's in dependence upon these sentient beings that I've been able to flourish. They grew the rice, they grew the vegetables, they even slaughtered the animals and got some negative karma from that. If I'm a carnivore, even I'm not a carnivore, we had that whole talk yesterday, it's hard to live with no injury at all. And some people are out there and they are creating the food for us, preparing it for us. And so whenever you see any sentient beings, rather than having even the moment of thinking, boy, I'm superior to them, just thank you. And knowing that insofar as we've learned dharma, understanding, knowledge has increased, then our responsibility increases. That's just reality. And it's now 6.06. .06. And so we'll get to Kathleen's question tomorrow and she will articulate it verbally. And... That's it. So thank you for a very rich question. It's a wonderful question. Really good question. Excellent.